I'd ask you to please stand with me at reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And once again, we are in Luke 24. And I'll be preaching from Luke 24, 28 to 35, but to set the context, I'll start all the way back at verse 13 to 27 uh, that we read last week. So, Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of, our church, of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture, as we hear and see the witness of the risen Jesus Christ, God the Son in human flesh, we pray that you would work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Please open our eyes to see the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. Please open your word to us and make our hearts burn with zeal for you. Help us to faithfully bear witness to who you are and to what you came to do. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last time I talked about how amazing it would be to be on a road trip with Jesus, especially the road trip that he took with those two grieving disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as they walked along, they were discussing his death and his disappearance, the the crucifixion and the empty tomb. And Jesus approached them and walked along with them. 
But even as they walked together, their eyes were veiled from seeing Christ and knowing who he really was. They saw a person there with him, but they did not know who he was because it was hidden from them. So Jesus asked them what they were talking about, and they, they stopped they stopped walking, and they, they stood there grief-stricken, grief written all over their faces. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked Jesus if he was the only one who didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem. But the reality is Jesus is the only one who did know what was going on in Jerusalem. So Cleopas was shocked at, at Jesus' apparent lack of awareness, but the lack of awareness is actually that of Cleopas. He didn't know who was with him. He didn't know who Jesus was or what Jesus had come to do. And so Cleopas goes on to outline some of the facts. He, he says what took place, that, that Jesus was a prophet, mighty in, in deed and in, in word. But that the Jewish authorities had handed Jesus over to be crucified and killed. The disciples had hoped that Jesus was going to redeem Jerusalem, but their hopes were dashed. And now he says it's the third day since Jesus has been killed and some of the women from among them had actually gone to the tomb and found the tomb empty, that the body of Jesus was gone. But the angels had told them that Jesus is alive and that other disciples had gone and confirmed that the tomb was indeed empty, but they didn't see Jesus. So Cleopas got the bare facts right, but do you see how he's underestimating Jesus? Do you see how he's showing that he doesn't really know who Jesus really is? Do you see how he's actually selling Jesus short? He says that Jesus was a prophet. But Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is the messianic prophet promised by Moses. He says that Jesus Christ was, was mighty in word. Well, it's true that Jesus did proclaim the word of God, but he did not just proclaim the word of God. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He says that Jesus performed mighty deeds, and he did. But Jesus didn't just perform the deeds. Jesus is the almighty God. Furthermore, he says that Jesus was killed, bearing the wrath of man. But Jesus actually bore the wrath of God on the cross. He says that he hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel, would, would set them free from captivity to Rome. But Jesus came to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation from their sins. He said that Jesus had disappeared from the tomb. But he didn't just disappear. He rose from the grave. As I explained last week, the, 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 the lack of awareness of these disciples as to who Jesus really is as he walks with them is a living parable of a spiritual lack of awareness as to who Jesus really is. It's a picture of their spiritual blindness. Cleopas and the disciple who was with him should have known who Jesus is and, and what he had come to do. Jesus has been traveling them and teaching them all these things for the past three years. And furthermore, they had the Old Testament scriptures that taught specifically what Jesus was going to do. That specifically taught who Jesus is. And so Jesus rebuked them, calling them foolish and slow of heart for not believing the prophets. They should have known that the Christ must suffer these things and then enter into his glory. And then, beginning with Moses 
and the prophets, Jesus taught them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave them the most powerful lesson in biblical theology that has ever been taught by anyone anywhere. Jesus Christ taught them biblical Christology, but they still didn't recognize him. That's all review of, of verses 13 to 27. All of that took place on the road with Jesus. As I said last week, there's, there's no other person I'd rather be on a road trip than Jesus. As much as I love my family, I love traveling with my family, I would so, if I had the choice, I'd go with Jesus. Jane would too. But it's also true that I'd rather have no one at my table than Jesus. If you, if you could sit down with anybody on the planet, anybody in, who's ever been on the planet, imagine being able to sit down at the table with Jesus. Well, this week the disciples are going to reach Emmaus, their geographical destination, and they're going to invite Jesus to their table. And it's at the table with Jesus that these disciples will arrive at their spiritual destination. Because at the table, Jesus will reveal to them who he really is. You know, mealtimes have figured prominently throughout Luke's gospel account. Much, much has been revealed about Jesus at the table. Right at the house of, of Levi, the repentant tax collector. Jesus reclined at table with a large company of other tax collectors. At the house of the Pharisee, Jesus reclined at the table when a sinful woman wet his feet with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus offered to her forgiveness and told her to go in peace. Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 with five small loaves and two fish, another meal. And it was at a meal that Jesus taught Martha the priority of sitting at his feet. And it was at another meal where Jesus used parables to teach the necessity of, of humility and hospitality and of heeding God's call. Jesus invited himself to dinner at the house of Zacchaeus, another repentant tax collector, to demonstrate that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. These are all glorious examples of table fellowship with Jesus in Luke's gospel account. But the greatest meal in Luke's gospel account, in fact, the greatest meal in all of the gospel accounts is where Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples one last time on the night before his crucifixion. Instituting the Lord's Supper, one of the two ordinances that have been given to the church to reflect the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. But here we have one more meal. Actually, there's another meal we'll look at next week as well. But this meal which Jesus didn't actually eat, is the occasion where Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these disciples. And so the curtain will be pulled back and their eyes will be opened. There are three main scenes in this passage. In verses 28 to 30, the two disciples invite Jesus to the table. In verses 31 and 32, the two disciples' eyes are opened. And then in verses 33 to 35, the two disciples spread the news. So first of all, verses 28 to 30, the two disciples invite Jesus to the table. The three travelers, Jesus and the two disciples, arrive at 
uh, approached at Emmaus, their destination. It's the end of their 11-kilometer journey from Jerusalem. And Jesus acted as if he was going further, but the two disciples, obviously captivated by his by their traveling companion after his exposition to the script of the scriptures, constrained Jesus to stay with them. Evening was approaching, and it, 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 in that time, it wasn't safe for travelers to be on the road after dark because of of either wild robbers or, or robbers or wild animals. Now, I've often wondered about this. Most of the English Bibles say that Jesus acted as if he were going further. So, so did Jesus pretend? Did he merely pretend like he's going further? Doesn't it seem contrary to Jesus' nature to be less than 100% honest? It does to me. But the word that's, that's translated there in, in most modern translations, uh, acted, can also be translated, give the, gave the impression that. And I think here that the New King James gets it gets the right sense. He indicated that he would have gone farther. Jesus indicated that he would have gone farther. In other words, that Jesus would not have stayed unless he was invited. Commentator Norval Heldenweiss explains that, that it may not be taken as meaning that Jesus did so merely as a pretext for the sake of appearance. If they, are not if they had not invited him, he would have passed on. They would have forfeited the inexpressible privilege of discovering that it was their risen Lord who had been with them and instructed them. And he continues. Because he had spoken to them thus on the way, their hearts burned with love for him, and they invited him in and, and thus received the richest blessings. Even the Lord himself as the living king of their lives. How often does Jesus arrest, address us along life's way? And still he desires to enter where he's invited. The disciples were drawn to Jesus by the way that he showed to them the scriptures and how the scriptures pointed to him and what he must do, even though they did not yet know who he was. So they compelled him to stay with him. And again, I, I think that, that, as I mentioned last week, I, I can't say for sure, but I, but I think this was, was likely a husband and wife who were on the road. They didn't just invite him for dinner. They, they urged him strongly to come home with them. Now, we've seen this repeatedly in the Gospels, that the Lord Jesus waits to give an answer to a request until the supplicant really presses him. Okay, so for example, the, like the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, she asked Jesus to, to heal her daughter who had been possessed with a demon. Now Jesus knew full well what he was going to do, but he seemed to, to be putting her off by answering her like this, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So it seems like Jesus is, is putting her off, like he doesn't really want to help her, but what he's really doing is he's pressing her to press him. He's pressing her to press him. This is the message also of the persistent widow in Luke 18. The widow's persistence convinces the uncaring judge to help her. And so Jesus there is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If, if the widow's persistence can convince an unrighteous judge, 
an uncaring judge, then certainly we can go faithfully to the faithful God in prayer, confident that he will help us. So Jesus is encouraging us to diligently seek what we need from God and to keep on seeking, even if the answer seems, from our perspective, to be delayed. So then Jesus is helping these disciples to be more conscious of their desire for him. Jesus wants us to be more conscious of our desire for him. He helps us to seek him while he may found, be found and to call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. Are you calling upon the Lord while he is here? Are you seeking the Lord while he is near? Are you urging Jesus to stay with you? Or are you content to let him pass by? Now, I know it's become a cliche when, when people say, have you invited Jesus into your heart? But have you? Have you actually invited Jesus into your heart? Have you earnestly prayed to Jesus that he would forgive you of your sins, that he would be your Lord and your Savior? Listen, God is sovereign. He is in control. He does everything that is necessary for you to be saved. His grace, as the children learned this morning, is irresistible. But you also have a responsibility to ask him to come into your life to save you and to dwell with you in and through the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not just a religion. Christianity is not just, just a set of objective doctrinal truths. Now, Christianity is objective doctrinal truth, but it is so much more than that. Christianity is a relationship with Almighty God through Jesus Christ, the Savior. Theology is important, but theology is not, is not an end unto itself. Theology is a means to an end. And that end is understanding who God is so that you can enjoy fellowship with him and worship him for who he really is. So now in verse 30, when Jesus is at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, you know, if you've ever been in church before when they've done the Lord's Supper, then there's probably, oh, I recognize that. Right? It, it, it might sound to you like the beginning of the Lord's Supper. And this indeed the, the words that, that Jesus used when he instituted the Lord's Supper. But this isn't that. This table that, that we're speaking of here is, is not actually the Lord's Supper. First of all, there, there's no mention of wine. Secondly, these disciples were not there at the institution of the Lord's Supper. It was only Jesus and the apostles, so they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have recognized this. This is simply the words that take place at the beginning of a Jewish meal. That at the beginning of the meal, the, the host usually would, would take the bread and bless it and break it and hand it around. But now this meal, as we see, is, is atypical. Because who is the one who's actually blessing the bread and breaking it and handing it out? Jesus. But Jesus isn't the host. Jesus is the guest. 
So, so I think here there's a recognition from, from these disciples that there is somebody here who is a very distinguished guest. But they didn't realize yet just how distinguished he is. And that's about to change. Verses 31 and 32. The two disciples' eyes are opened. Something is about to take place at this table that would change their lives forever. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. The, the verb here, you can, you can see from the, the original, from, from Greek, the, you can see the verb is passive. It's a, it's a passive verb, which, which means that, that it's not they who opened their own eyes. Their eyes were opened for them. This is echoed in verse 35, that, that he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, some commentators take this to mean that, that that when Jesus handed out the bread, that they could have seen the, the marks on his hands. Or that, that, um, that something in his manner as he prayed made them recognize him, that, that something was familiar and they recognized him. But I see this as a spiritual eye-opener. That this seems to be another, this seems to be another divine passive. It's a passive verb, very probably another divine passive, like the one in, in verse 16, where their eyes were kept from recognizing them, and now their, their eyes were opened so that they could recognize him. God kept them from recognizing him on the road, and now God opened their eyes to him at the table. And this is reinforced by what happens next. He vanishes from their sight. He disappears. Now, in his glorified state, Jesus did have a, a does have a, an actual physical body. But, but somehow, it's something we, we can't understand that his body is able to, to appear and to disappear. It's going to happen again uh, in, in the next passage. And in this case, his visible presence has served his purpose. The disciples who were once blind to the reality of who Jesus is and what he'd come to do had begun to have their slow hearts opened through Jesus' exposition of the scriptures, and now their eyes were open as well. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see that shocked look on their faces? Now, we already know. But they were just finding out that Jesus is, is alive. It's Jesus. He's here in front of us. There's a grief over Jesus' death would, would melt away into joy. These disciples, once in the agony of despair, now rejoice. This changes everything. Jesus Christ is the risen Redeemer. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? So in, in hindsight, 2020 hindsight, they, they, they realized, well, we already knew. But now we really know. So, so what does this mean? What is this, this burning of the heart that they're talking about? Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about what it isn't. I five, five things that the burning of the heart isn't. First of all, it's, it's the so-called, it's not the, the so-called burning in the bosom that Mormons speak of. Mormons speak of a, of a burning in the bosom that affirms to them that the words of Joseph Smith are actually objective truth. And they, they draw the concept from, from this passage, from Luke 24. But ironically, 
how the Mormons take it is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The disciples' hearts burned while Jesus opened the scriptures to them. But the teachings of Joseph Smith are contrary to the scriptures. Second, this brings me also the second reason that it's it's the second thing the burning of the heart isn't. It's, it's not just a subjective experience. Now it is an experience, but it's not just a, just a personal private experience that's based on, on you and, and your thinking, your assessment of things. It's grounded in the truths of God's word. Remember Romans 10, 17, I quoted it last week. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's experience, but it's grounded in God's word. Third, the burning of the heart is, is not just an emotional experience. The, the emotions can and, and should be involved, but it doesn't stay in the emotions. It doesn't sit there. In emotions, it results in real change. It bears fruit. People can have, have a strong emotional response to the proclamation of God's word, but it might not result in real change. And quite often, the next day, people write back where they were before. Fourth, the burning heart doesn't come from talented oratory. There are many motivational speakers that skillfully use techniques to draw out an emotional response in their hearers. I'm not a skilled orator. I'm just a simple preacher. I'm not trying to create an emotional response in you. I can't make your heart burn. I can't even make my own heart burn except with hot sauce. But this leads me to the last thing I want to make clear that the burning of the heart isn't. Fifth, the burning heart is not something that you can make happen to yourself. It's something that happens to you. Again, this is a passive verb. This is a divine passive. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who makes your heart burn as he quickens the word to your heart. That being said, this is a passive verb, but you aren't just passive. You have to pray for God to work through his word. God has, has ordained that he would work in response to the prayers of his people. You need to pray. You actually have to sit down to, to read the word. You're not going to get a, a, a heart-burning experience from the scriptures if you don't open the scriptures. You have to discipline yourself to focus while you're reading the word of God. And so come to the word of God with expectation that God will work through his word. Isaiah 55, God says, My word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that's what the burning heart isn't. Well, let's now consider briefly what it is. The burning heart occurs when the Holy Spirit brings God's word to bear in a powerful way. Whether you're you're reading the word of God or, or hearing the word of God proclaimed and the scriptures hit you right between the eyes. It, it, a passage, maybe even a passage you've read many times before, takes on new life. Uh, it, it takes on a, a deeper personal meaning and application. And it might include conviction of sin, an awareness of one of God's precious promises or, or something about God's person or work that floors you or some combination thereof. And, and when that happens, you come away changed. It 
bears fruit in your life for the glory of God. Does your heart ever burn while the scriptures are opened to you? Or is your heart consistently cold to the word of God? Maybe your heart is so cold to the word of God that you barely read the word of God. Or maybe your heart is so cold to the word of God that you, you don't like sitting under the proclamation of the word of God. You're just here this morning because somebody dragged you to church. And time slows to a crawl. And you wonder if I'm ever going to finish. Well, don't worry, I'm almost halfway through. Just kidding. It's a lot more than that. I have to confess that, that at times my heart is cold to the word of God. Now I have experienced a burning heart many times, even this morning. But I don't experience this nearly as often as, as I should or as I'd like. Now I would love for my heart to burn every time the scriptures are opened. But that's just not the reality, frankly. Sometimes, and I praise God for these times, that, that I approach the Word of God, I sit down with the Bible, and my heart feels cold. But, but as I open God's Word and I begin to read, my heart gets warmed. For me, this happens particularly as I read the Psalms. But there are other times, and again, far more often than, than I would like, sometimes even days at a time, when I'm not consciously affected by the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not being affected by the Word of God. But it's not a conscious awareness. of a, It's not that, that strong move of the Holy Spirit that we're seeing here. Now, thankfully, God doesn't leave me there. He, he brings me to my knees in prayer, and he answers my prayers. Now, my Bible reading right now has me, just as an aside, my Bible reading has me right now in, in 1 Chronicles. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Chronicles 1 to 9, it's, it's a long genealogy. Now, the genealogies are the word of God. But frankly, I've never experienced a burning heart in the genealogies of 1 Chronicles 1 to 9. It's, it's, sometimes it can be hard to get excited about genealogies. But I have to say that I was, I was helped yesterday as I, I read the introduction to 1 Chronicles in the, in the Reformation Study Bible. It gave me some very helpful information to consider and to, to, to help me and to be used of God to help quicken my heart as I approached First Chronicles. And I enjoyed reading First Chronicles yesterday. I was also greatly helped. This also is an aside, but I think this is helpful for you. I talked about this quite some time ago, but, but I was helped a great deal by, by what's called the, the beep test. Now, I'm not talking about the sports fitness challenge. If you've ever done that, you know what I'm talking about, and I'd probably benefit from that as well, but in a different way. This beep test was was devised by Andrew Curry, one of my classmates at TMS. And his BEEP test is, is a way to helpfully understand the genealogies. So BEEP is an acronym. So BEEP, where does the genealogy begin? E, where does the genealogy end? E, is there any extra information? And P, where is, what is the position of this genealogy in the book of the Bible that I'm reading? 
And so if you include that, that BEP and consider that consciously as you approach a genealogy, it, it will really help you to understand that the point of the genealogy and its enduring application. And maybe, just maybe, it'll even help your heart burn for the power of the Spirit. But again, what is your attitude as you sit down to open God's Word? Do you even sit down to open God's Word? If the Scriptures are not a key part of your daily life, you should be even more concerned. But again, if you do open them, when you do, what is your attitude? Do you just look at your Bible reading as a, as a hoop to jump through so that you can get on with what you really want to do? Is your Bible reading just, just ticking a box of, of some spiritual duty? Or do you come to the Word of God as a judge of the Word of God, as though you're going to sit in judgment of God's Word instead of letting God's Word sit in judgment of you? Or, or do you come just to get some theological knowledge? Or do you come to God's Word with a yawn? Now, I'm sure at times any of us can have any of these attitudes, but when you do, ask God for forgiveness. Ask God for help, and He will give you both. Because there is an alternative. Come to the scriptures with full expectation of having an encounter with Almighty God. And watch what God does. Now, as I pray in, in, my, in my preparation for my sermon preparation, my first prayer is that I will be personally impacted by the passage, that the Holy Spirit will apply the passage to me. I then pray for each of you. Throughout the weeks, several times through the week, I will pray directly for you by name that the Holy Spirit will, will quicken the passage to your heart, that the Holy Spirit will cause the Word of God to meet you in your circumstances, and you will be impacted. And I have prayed for you by name this week several times that you would have a heart that burns with zeal for Christ with worship for Christ, with love for Christ, as you behold the risen Christ. Again, make it your regular pattern to pray for yourself and for me and for the whole church that our hearts will burn as the scriptures are opened for us. Listen, God has decreed that he will speak to his people through his word in the power of the spirit. We saw that already in Isaiah 55. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We all will stand before God and the only hope that we have before Almighty God is to stand before God in clothed, as we sang, in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and lived for our righteousness, that we can stand before God, credited with all of his good works, and enter into the presence of God. The only hope that you have to stand before the Holy God is to stand in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed in his word. Finally, 
So what is the response of those two disciples as their hearts burn? Verses 33 to 35, the two disciples spread the news. They spread the news. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now they rose that same hour means they, they got up immediately. It looks like they just left their dinner on the table and took off back in the direction they'd just come. Wouldn't you? You just found out that Jesus is alive. Your hopes were dashed, but your hopes, you realize your hopes weren't even close to high enough. Your hope isn't just renewed. Your hope reaches an entirely new level. So now the disciples really begin to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. They couldn't just keep it to themselves. They got up and they hightailed it back to Jerusalem. The dangers of the road were forgotten. The 11 kilometers weren't a problem. I wonder how they would have done on the beep test. But they, they found the 11 apostles and the other disciples gathered together. Now the 11 here is a, is a designation for the apostles, like a group designation. Now that Judas was dead. It appears, as you can see, we cross-reference with John, that Thomas wasn't there. But they would have been busting to share the good news. They would have been, we see Jesus. He's alive. But they can't even get the good news out of their mouths before they're hit with even more good news. The disciples in Jerusalem are, are already jubilant. The 11 had good news for them. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, there's no biblical record of where this happened, but 1 Corinthians 15, 5 testifies to it as well, that the risen Christ appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Now, this points to Peter's restoration after his three-time denial of Jesus. John 22 clearly shows that Peter was restored, but it's not directly stated in Luke or the other synoptic gospels, but Jesus has appeared to Peter. The disciples weren't convinced by the women's testimony alone, but Peter's testimony confirmed it. Now, I can't imagine that these two disciples were disappointed in the least at not being able to share the news themselves. The, the news about Peter isn't thunder-stealing. Whose thunder is it? It's the Lord's thunder. The Lord has risen. Not only has he risen, but he is the risen Lord. He has authority. And Peter's testimony would have only added to their joy and their wonder. Good news is interrupted by even more good news. Good news stacked upon good news. It's further evidence for the disciples and it's further evidence for us that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And now the two disciples get to share their good news. In verse 35, they told the others what had happened on the road and how it was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now they get to share their joy. They had seen Jesus too. They had become witnesses as well. Like the two angels, the witness of Peter and then of these two disciples is another double witness. As we'll see in the next passage, the, the witness of these disciples is going to grow to global proportions. And if you were sitting here as a Christian, you are part of that. 
The Lord is about to ascend to heaven, but before he goes, he's going to commission the disciples as witnesses that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. We'll look at that next time in verse 47. Friends, you have seen Jesus. You have seen Jesus as the scriptures have been opened. May the Holy Spirit cause your heart to burn with worship and zeal for the risen Christ. May the Holy Spirit to empower you to bear witness of him as well. You've seen Jesus in the lives of the saints gathered here, in their faith and their faithfulness through trials, overcoming sin and temptation, in their love and service to each other, in their hospitality to strangers, and a host of other examples of good works. May you spur one another on to follow them as they follow Jesus. You're about to see Jesus again as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This meal that Jesus shared with his disciples when when their eyes were opened wasn't the Lord's Supper, but this is the Lord's Supper. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and may your hearts be opened. May your eyes be opened to behold Christ who lived a perfectly righteous life, died a sinner's death on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for his chosen bride who rose again on the third day, ascended to the throne of God and will return to judge the world and to bring his people home. At the Lord's Supper, we are going to see a foretaste of a coming time when we will together sit at the Lord's table in glory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we marvel at the glorious gospel. So marvelous, so wonderful that we cannot even understand it without the work of your Holy Spirit bringing it home to our hearts. And we pray now that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we will all behold the risen Christ with the eyes of faith. Help us to believe and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ to come into fellowship with him for those who have not yet done so. For those who have drifted, that you may draw us back into an intimacy with you. For those whose hearts are already burning, may they burn even more brightly, more hotly, that increasingly, to be transformed into the image of Christ, to bring glory to his name so that more and more people will see and hear the witness of the risen Christ and will themselves come to saving faith in him. We ask it all in the precious name of Christ, the only Savior. Amen.